All of the newest episodes of Note to Self are now available on the Luminary Podcast app. It's free to download, and you can also listen to other podcasts from WNYC Studios like Radiolab, Two Dope Queens, Snap Judgment, Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin, and others. Luminary Premium is the only place where you can enjoy the entire new season of Note to Self, plus new original podcasts you won't find anywhere else from Trevor Noah, Roxanne Gay, Guy Raz, Lena Dunham, and many more. And you can enjoy them ad-free. Start your free trial by going to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary app for free. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. The iPhone and my son were both born exactly 10 years ago. My relationship to each of them continues to evolve. Some days are more harmonious than others. Every single year, they both become faster, smarter thinkers and more integrated into the world around me. But from the very beginning, my kid and my phone have had one big thing in common. They both want my attention all the time. I'm Anoush Samarodi, and note to self, you, me, everyone's life changed immeasurably a decade ago, even if you didn't become a parent that year. Do you even remember a time before the swipe or the selfie? Each person has their own story of how the smartphone radically changed something in their life. I moved high schools in my junior year. That was also when I got my first iPhone that made me less introverted because with the iPhone came this sharing culture and it made me feel more comfortable being visible. I first got an iPhone when I was just starting out as a freelancer. And it was great because it really helped me manage my business. But it also meant that I was always on call. So, you know, kind of a double-edged sword. There's all these ways I take it for granted, like maps and texts and looking up when things are open. Now there are an endless amount of prospects on dating apps like Bumble. So there's basically no incentive for people to actually go to meet new people unless they've already arranged and vetted them virtually. Those were members of the Note to Self team, Jen, Kat, Megan, and Joe. And I'm sure you have your own story too, dear listener. Whether you're 14 or 94, you probably remember the shift, that moment when you went from the clamshell or a Blackberry to a smartphone. It felt magical. And chances are it did happen to you because at least here in the U.S., three out of four Americans have a smartphone. And if you're listening to podcasts, you're most likely one of them. And on a daily basis, when we're out, using our phone to get around or capture a moment or take a quick look at the headlines, we don't even think about it unless we can't find our phone. And then we panic. Well, today, let's stop and think about that thing that you carry with you everywhere, whether it's an iPhone or an Android phone, where the smartphone has been and where it's going. Two people who think all the time about smartphones, but who each have a very different take on how they've changed us and our behavior. There's definitely an advantage to this relationship, but the texture begins to leach out of the world. That's the very soulful technologist and writer Adam Greenfield. You're going to hear from him later in the show. But now let's talk to one of the first people who ever tried an iPhone outside of Apple's labs, Yahoo tech journalist David Pogue. 
So much and yet so little has changed since people first lined up around the block waiting to put finger to touch screen in 2007. The hysteria over this thing was unbelievable for a phone that, you know, couldn't record video. There were no apps. You couldn't install apps. But that didn't stop people from standing in line a thousand deep around the Apple store on Fifth Avenue, you know, for the week before it came out to be the first. It was just so magical with the multi-touch screen. Apple had created this physics of the way things moved. You know, you'd swipe on a list and it would scroll uh, as though it had inertia and and come to a slow stop. (laughs) And you could zoom into a picture by unpinching, you know, and and when you hit the uh, deleted an email, it would crumple up and fly into the little trash can. No one had ever seen anything like it. I mean, at this time, you know, 2020 hindsight and all that, but did you get a sense of just how not just technology changing, but really society life-changing this gadget would be? I think I could see that this was obviously the way that phones were going to go. I don't think anyone could have predicted the society-changing aspect until a year later when the App Store came along. It's funny that you say that because that was when I finally got an iPhone was when the apps started coming. And I was like, okay, actually, now I get it. Now I want to try it out. And this was mind-blowing to me that I could be at the playground with my kid and doing all of these other things. There was this sense that life could be conducted in two different places, different than just with the flip phone, where, yeah, you could be on the phone. But no, I could look up the library hours. I could make a date and not have to dig out my calendar. I could do all kinds of things at once. And as a working mother, this felt revolutionary to me. I mean, what you're describing is the other huge accomplishment of the iPhone. It was really the first time the masses were ever online all the time. And of course, that is a mixed blessing. So yes, it unleashed the ability for moms to be at the playground and checking in with the world. But of course, it also introduced the concept of people with their faces buried in their phones during dinner and kids losing the ability to converse and all the downsides, too, of being online all the time. My prediction is in five years, it won't be cool to have your phone on on the weekends, that people will be like, oh, my God, he's such a loser. He was on his phone all weekend long. And that there will be a backlash to this sort of intense living only online as opposed to doing things. That's my— Oh, I you, don't you, bet money on that. Okay, you don't think so. All right. No, unless it's with me. I'll see you in five years, David <laughs> That's Pope. right. Okay, so David Pogue and I have very different perspectives. After the break, someone who, like me, thinks an app is never just an app. The self's intersection with the cell phone. That's coming up. Stick with us. We're back. It's Note to Self. I'm Manoush Zamarodi. The iPhone is 10 years old, and you can read a tech review to know what pixel ratio or battery life a phone will have. But to really understand its impact on our brains and society, it's good to hear from someone like Adam Greenfield. 
He works at the intersection of design, technology, and culture. And his recent book, Radical Technologies, delves right into all the juicy sociological stuff we love to talk about on this show. In fact, the first chapter is called Smartphone, the Networking of Self. We've become these decisively networked souls that are truly connected with other psyches, other capabilities in the environment. I think of it almost as a Cronenbergian moment in which we've grafted an organ physically onto our bodies. <laughs> it's um, an image which has its horror, but there's something kind of endearing about the clumsiness of it. You know, I was thinking about the things that I don't miss because I now have a phone, Adam. I don't miss CDs. I was always worried about scratching them. I don't miss having to carry around a separate camera because I always forgot it. So many physical things in our lives were just replaced by this slab. Yeah, and it's both physical objects and physical sites. Artifacts like the Rolodex or the little black book that somebody of Roger Sterling's era would have kept his amours <laughs> listed in. Phone booths go away as well. I think that if you empty out uh, your pockets or your purse or your wallet at the end of the day and take a rigorous accounting for what's there, you'll see that things have begun to kind of evaporate away and be converged into the device. There's definitely an advantage to this relationship. But the texture begins to leach out of the world. So the remarkable physical variation of the world just begins to lose some of its vividity. Like, I remember I grew up in a middle-class family for whom a trip to Europe was kind of the ultimate in sophistication. And when we returned from Europe when I was a child, my parents wallpapered one of the bathrooms in our house with every transit ticket and every receipt and every <laughs> gum wrapper that we had picked up in our journeys around Europe. And for years, it was this conversation starter. It was this amazing environment that really wouldn't be the same now. There's nothing that necessarily feels that much different about tapping your phone on a reader to get into the tube system in London than in Seoul. These places are becoming just that little bit flatter and I miss that texture. I don't know that anybody else does, but I'll certainly, speaking for myself, say that I miss it. What I miss the most is humans committing to be at a certain time and place to meet each other. Because yeah. now we can always change our mind or something comes up or I'll text you that I'm late. I'm so tired of changing plans <laughs> all the time because we can. It's kind of driving me bananas, as you can tell. In the book, I use the phrase compulsory flexibility. Oh, and I love that. Well, you know, in the specific context, I'm talking about labor relations. We're now in the sort of era of compulsory flexibility for people who earn their living through waged or salaried work. But I think that the notion of compulsory flexibility extends to everything that we do on, in, and through the network, including the, the sorts of social appointments that we make. We have become a species in permanent perpetual motion and that trying to chart the trajectories of any two of us through the world so that they align at a given place and time is simply too much to ask anymore. <laughs> you know, I, I, me personally, I've stopped checking into places because I realized that it became a social performance. Like, you would always check in when you went somewhere fabulous and you wanted people to think that you were the kind of fabulous person that went there. But if you happened to be overcome by a craving for, like, a Whopper, you wouldn't check in at, <laughs> at Burger King. 
right? And, and so these things were fictions, and it just began to feel gross to me. It's interesting. I think what's happened with Uber is an extraordinary example. Uber can happen because we have smartphones that know where we are all the time. They change our very concept of what a weight is or not knowing where your car is. You can track something as it goes. It changes the relationship. It creates the gig economy. It's used by startups they want to be the Uber of laundry, the Uber <laughs> of childcare. It changes our vernacular. The first thing that jumps out at me is how overpowering the ideology of convenience is that's bound up in a proposition like Uber. So overwhelming that people can manage to overlook the really <laughs> corrosive ways in which Uber is in the world. I think... I've tried very hard in my life not to judge those friends of mine who still have Uber on their phone. I need to know what I'm talking about, so I downloaded it and I used it exactly once so I could characterize and describe the experience fairly. But I'm appalled by Uber, and I'm appalled by everything it represents, and I'm notorious among my friends for being sort of difficult on this question. You know, they roll their eyes and they groan. It's like, oh, Adam doesn't want to take Uber again. I guess we're going to have to wait for you to show up because you've taken the bus. (laughs) But one of the things I think it's really important to remember is that in many places there has been a failure of public transit. And the public transit system in a given city might have been underfunded for 30 or 40 years, deliberately starved of the resources it needs. So you look at a place like San Francisco or Washington, D.C., we forget to ask why these resources were underfunded for so long why the streets are in such terrible condition, why the bus only arrives once an hour. And I think there's something depoliticizing about this. And so this is why I think it's really, really important to unpack what is bound up in the proposition of convenience that any of these apps offer to us. It's also why it's so problematic that so many of these apps are devised by a relatively homogeneous group of people, you know, in their maybe mid to late 20s who are living in the Bay Area, who are all living the same sort of lifestyle. And naturally, by definition, they're going to find propositions that that help automate the hassle out of their existence. And this sort of way of life is going to propagate across the network. It's going to feel like the most rational, the simplest, the most convenient, the normal thing to do. And I find that wildly problematic. I got into a cab the other day because I happened to hail a cab, but the guy yeah. had his iPhone propped on the dashboard and he couldn't get the GPS to work. And he panicked. He was like, well, I don't know how to get where we're going if my GPS doesn't work. And I could he- <laughs> I could hear in his accent that he was from the neighborhood. I was like, uh, you're obviously like a New Yorker. You do know where Canal Street is, right? So do we need GPS? And he sort of stopped for a minute. He was like, you know what? You're right. And he turned it (laughs) off and he got me there. And he was so proud of himself. This outsourcing of knowing where we are in time and space is the other thing that I find so mystifying. Literally, I will look up if I've been checking something on my phone and I'll be I won't have remembered walking on the sidewalk or seeing what was around me. And and there's something about our changing relationship to time and space. Well, there, there's a quote that I reach for, something Marshall McLuhan said, I think in maybe 1959. He said, every extension is also an amputation. 
And by that, he meant when we graft onto ourselves these, these technical surrogates or these prostheses, our capabilities are radically extended. But in so doing, our organic capacity for the things that you're talking about begin to erode. We lose the habit of situational awareness. We lose the habit of thinking about where we are in time and space, where our body is located, what sorts of risks and threats, and equally what sorts of opportunities might exist in our spatial sphere. And this extends to every way in which the smartphone as a device extends our capabilities. We are vastly empowered by it, but should we experience a default of even a couple of seconds, we're thrown back on our own organic native capabilities. And if we have allowed those native capabilities to corrode, we find ourselves in a world of hurt. When you use a smartphone, you enter into what I think of as an experience of schizogeography. You're effectively in two places at once. You are both physically in the world, and psychically you're committed to this alter sphere. You're simultaneous to two different places at once, one of which is virtual and the other which is physical. The trouble with that, though, is that the real world, the physical world, has a way of reasserting its sovereignty with a bang. You know, it could be an open manhole cover, it could be a taxi that's careening around the corner, or it could be somebody headed directly at you who isn't looking up from the screen of their phone. To the degree that our capabilities are extended by the smartphone, we become that much less canny ourselves. And I do think there's a loss there. I mean, I'm uh, maybe like you. You know, I was born in 1968. I, I cherish my memories of what real 24-hour American cities felt like. There's part of me that worries that somebody listening is like, oh, these two sad Gen Xers who are waxing <laughs> sentimental, reminiscing about when you had to buy a bus ticket. Yes, yes. And let us be clear about that, right? <laughs> I mean, we, we, we wouldn't have invited these objects into our lives if we didn't on balance perceive that they did something pretty amazing for us. And they do, right? But there is a trade-off involved. There is what the systems analysts used to call a cost-benefit analysis. And the terms of those trade-offs are just never made clear. So, yeah, we are absolutely empowered in many ways. There is a fair amount of what we, in the industry, we used to call surprise and delight mm. in the use of these things. I, myself, you know, I'm the first one to admit that the description of being more or less you know, addicted and permanently attached to this thing, that applies to me as well. And I would have a hard time living my life without it. So all is not doom and gloom. I think my own feeling is that we are up against some pretty hard limits of the human sensorium and our native ability to process information, the bandwidth of human consciousness. I really do think that we are struggling cognitively with the massive torrential flow of information that we're now asked to incorporate through the aperture of these devices. I'm on safe ground saying I'm personally at the limit of my ability to parse the information that's tumbling through my field of view. I'm less comfortable saying that somebody your son's age is necessarily in quite the same position. I'm perfectly willing to remain open to the idea that we adapt and that we develop new capabilities. But for those of us who have been in the world since before these things were introduced to us, I have to regard it as a strain on our capability to be fully present, fully emotionally present. I, th I think that's what I'm concerned by 
more even than the cognitive overload, a lack of emotional presence in people who are distracted by their continuous connection to the network. I, I kind of feel like there's always a fear of missing out um, and that it, it may simply be that I'm personally a bore, but sometimes I feel like the person no. that I'm speaking with, yeah, you know, you never I think know. You're right. Well, I do think there's this portion of the population that just feels a little uneasy about it. And in fact, we did a project a couple of years ago, and I have a book version coming out in the fall called Bored and Brilliant, which was a week of doing assignments with people to get them to rethink how they use their phone in order to bring back some more boredom in their life and just sort of see what mm -hmm. happened if they would. I thought, oh, there'll be a couple hundred people will do this. And we had 30,000 people signed up. I can't remember the last time I was bored. And I think that's a problem because my sense is, is that the things that happen in those moments where your brain is kind of struggling to fill in the empty spaces are really, really valuable to us mm. spiritually, psychically. I, I remember the pain of boredom, <laughs> hours waiting for trains or, you know, stranded in some airport somewhere where I didn't speak the language, having nobody to talk to, not having anything to read. So I understand why having something literally ready to hand where there's always a game to play, there's always somebody to text, there's always the news to read. I understand the appeal of that, but I'm trying to inculcate in myself quiet moments, moments of, you know, it's probably pompous to say reflective moments, but I'm trying to allow more boredom into my life. And I think that it's really, really valuable to have 45 minutes at a stretch where I'm not actually looking at anything and I'm just kind of present in my environment. Do I think it makes me a better citizen, a better person? I don't know, but it makes me happier. But I have to ask then, Adam, what are your personal habits when it comes to your phone? Well, I tried to leave my phone in my pocket whenever I'm with somebody else. You know, most particularly, obviously, with my wife, but anybody that I've committed to being present with, by definition, that person is the most important person in the world at the moment. And, you know, short of all hell breaking loose in the world, you know, as, as has frankly happened a couple of times in recent memory, but short of some major crisis happening, my attention belongs to them. My focus properly belongs to them. That was Adam Greenfield. His book is Radical Technologies. Many thanks to him and Yahoo tech journalist David Pogue. And if you want to think more deeply about smartphones and their effects on our minds, our relationships, our productivity, well, guess what? I wrote a book about it. It's called Bored and Brilliant, and it comes out on September 5th. And you are going to be hearing more about it in the weeks to come. And yes, I'm going to be asking you to pre-order it because in the full spirit of transparency, apparently you need pre-orders to get more visibility on places like Amazon. That. I'm learning is how the online publishing economy works these days. So just like I ask you to please rate us on Apple Podcasts so that the algorithm puts us in front of more people who are looking for their next podcast, I'm going to humbly request your good faith for Bored and Brilliant, and I will thank you deeply for it. Your support means that we can do more cool stuff on this show and elsewhere with and for you. Plus, if you pre-order, I'm going to send you something called a book plate, which I'd never heard of. Basically, it's a glorified sticker, which I'm going to sign, but it's slightly cooler than that. Also, I will fill the envelope with my gratitude in addition to the sticker. So there's that. 
Okay, time to go now. The Note to Self team is Jen Poyant, Kat Aaron, Megan Cunane, and Joe Plord. Note to Self is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Anoush Samarodi, and thank you for listening. I mean, you know, I I find Watch out for the dog poop. Yeah, yeah, that that precisely, (laughs) right? I mean, you know.